Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. Today, we're going to celebrate being an absolute obsessive dork over the things you love. Being the type of person to search high and low to try and find out, okay, when Gladys Knight was recording vocals to Midnight Train to Georgia, who was in the room? Who was engineering? Who was laying down the backing tracks? Where was she standing? And why does all of this matter? The writer Danielle Smith does just that in her new book, Shine Bright, and we'll hear from her about it in a sec. But first, the Pulitzer Prize-winning writer Margot Jefferson has a new memoir out now titled Constructing a Nervous System. And it's an examination of her life through the lens of the art she consumes. And in this interview with NPR's Ari Shapiro, they have this really fascinating discussion about Ella Fitzgerald and her sweat. How she'd always look hot when she performed on TV. And what that says about race, class, gender, and the labor of performance. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Acorn TV. Acorn TV isn't just good, it's brilliant. With exceptional television from around the world. Their romances are more charming, their mysteries cozier, their noirs more gripping, and their comedies cleverer. More clever? Oh, you get it. Acorn TV is brilliant stories told brilliantly. Visit acorn.tv for a 30-day free trial with promo code NPR. So, in a nutshell, Acorn TV. Brilliant. Who made you the person you are? Parents, friends, sure. But what about people you've never met? Musicians, writers, characters in TV and movies? Margot Jefferson is a Pulitzer Prize-winning cultural critic, and she's also a celebrated memoirist. Her new book combines the two forms. It's called Constructing a Nervous System. She tells her own story through the creators and works of art that shaped her. The critic often writes from a place of power, and the memoirist from vulnerability. So I asked Margot Jefferson, what happens when you mix criticism and memoir in one book? What I wanted to do was reverse that dynamic, um, or at least give it much more um, texture. I've been very interested, the more years I've given to criticism, in how vulnerability in fact, can be um, a kind of critical authority. It, it probes, it exposes, it allows more, you know, imaginative access to the work. Um, and memoir is always, it seems to me, a mix of power and, 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 and vulnerability. You have the power of claiming this story and of claiming your interpretation of every part of it, mm. and yet you are um, exposing You're exposing yourself to all kinds of judgments. Well, let's take a specific example. You write about the influence that many different artists and musicians have had on you in your life. And and one of them is Ella Fitzgerald. And you write specifically about her sweat. When you were a child, what did Ella Fitzgerald's sweat represent to you? It represented to me when I saw her on television. It represented a kind of déclassé vision of labor. Working class um, women, you know, sweating. work and and not, particularly working class black women oh sweat. very much working class black women um one of the things you always noticed watching ella uh, on tv was that she seemed to be the only woman 
including even other black women who were more glamorous, let's say like Lena Horne, but she was the only woman among a population largely of white women on television who ever seemed to sweat. Perspiration is a genteel word for sweat. The tiny mm. little feminine drops. These, these white women didn't even perspire, it appeared. Oh, that was very unsettling to me. I was, I was very engaged in as a little black bourgeois girl. What appeared to be impeccable standards of class, gender, respectability. You write that her sweat and her size, quote, give me intimations of a black female destiny she has thwarted. It's a destiny that every hour, day, and year of my young life is plotted to prevent. And so if that's what Ella Fitzgerald's sweat and size meant to you as a young person, what does it mean to you today? It means I was able to leave that set of confines and stereotypes and constrictions up behind. It means the world. It means that I can bring to her, looking at her as well as listening to her, the the same ebullient sense of freedom that she brought to her music. It also means that the world has changed enormously. (laughs) It means very everyday things like I've been taken by history through race consciousness, class consciousness, hmm. feminist consciousness. You know, that's that's the hard work that gives you what you talk about as the freedom, the pleasure, the ebullience. You make a point in the book that I have thought about often since I read this line, which is that a writer works with what she lacks as well as what she has. Will you read this section of the book? A writer works with what she lacks as well as what she has. Watch a dancer adapt a movement to the constraints, the particular length and flexibility of their limbs. Listen to an actor or singer shift a line's rhythms to fit their range and timbre. Assess your lacks to see what use they might be put to. Develop other sources of plenty. Ask, what do I want desperately to write and how shall I write it? When am I trying not to write? When do my fluencies become clever distractions from what needs writing? How often have I watched with acute irritation at performers' distractions, kissing silently? Why don't you stop making that step, that melody, easier than it is? Why don't you find another way, another technique to get at it? Take the risk that it won't have the same effect you so admire and and covet in some other artist. The supple arabesque, that quietly sustained high note. All right. You can't get that long for effect by the same means. Have at it another way. Can an unexpected tension in the line, a surreptitious harshness in that note, make it work? I just love that instruction. Assess your lacks to see what use they might be put to. What a brilliant way of thinking about a lack. Well, <laughs> hard one, I might say. <laughs> you know, there you are faced with it. You know, and so you must find your way through and around. You must get resourceful. And in that way, I would say performers in every um, field, theater, dance, whatever, music, have been especially useful to me because you can watch and see and hear them making those adjustments. How important do you think it is that readers are familiar with the many different creators who you reference over the course of this book? It's a staggering range. Mm, I hope that 
I contextualized. I, I <laughs> gave each of them a setting, whether it was a scene or whether it was a sentence, that in some way, even if the reader didn't know this writer or singer exactly, it brought something to life, you know, mm-hmm. gave, got your senses going. Because there is so much music in this, do you want to give us a track to go out on? A song that you think would make a fitting conclusion? How about Ella doing How High the Moon? How High the Moon Don't you reach up to Mars Though the words may be wrong to this song We're asking a high, 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 high is the moon Give us a little insight into this that we might glean from the book. There is a great performance that she did um, at a Berlin festival in the 60s. When you're listening, you don't see her sweat. But, you know, she just goes chorus after chorus. You know, she goes up, she goes down, she scats, um, she hums, she even moans a little. And she ends triumphantly, for my purposes, uh, by taking a line from a Jerome Kern love song and changing it around. The song is Smoke Gets In Your Eyes, and she turns it Sweat gets in your eyes. Sweat gets in my <laughs> there it is. The moon and sweat and this this voice. Fearless and joyous. Margot Jefferson, her new book is Constructing a Nervous System. Thank you so much for talking with us about it. It was a pleasure. Thank you. With more and more information coming at you all day every day, it can be hard to know where to focus. The new Consider This newsletter from NPR can be that focus. Every weekday afternoon, we take one of the day's biggest stories and break it down in a simple, skimmable format so you can get a better grasp of one important topic and what it means for you in a couple of minutes. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. All right, like I said at the top, Danielle Smith, author of the new book Shine Bright, is an obsessive nerd about black women in pop music, in part because they typically don't get the same amount of critical attention as their white male counterparts. And by attention, I don't just mean praise, although that too, but also just examination and documentation. And she tells NPR's Wanda Summers what's lost when that stuff isn't captured for the historical record. By the way, this is just an excerpt of a longer, lovely interview from our friends over at It's Been a Minute. You can find the full conversation at their podcast feed. Anyway, here's Juana. All right, y'all. Writing a book is a feat, and if you ask any author, they'll tell you all about that. But today's guest had a little bit of help when it came to writing her new book. So I would just listen to say all of the songs that made it to number one R&B in 1971 that were created by women. That's longtime friend of the show, Danielle Smith. She says she relied heavily on playlists while working on her new book, Shine Bright, a very personal history of Black women in pop. You know, super specific, slightly nerdy playlists. Songs like Mr. Big Stuff by Gene Knight. The big stuff. Who do you think you are? Want ads by Honeycomb. Young men that got me through chapters. If I Were Your Woman by Gladys Knight and the Pips. That also just inspired me, you know, getting up in the morning and, and keeping my mind focused on the work. 
Now, Danielle is the queen of music reporting. She is the former editor-in-chief at both Billboard and Vibe magazines, and she is also the host of the Spotify podcast, Black Girl Songbook. I have been a big fan of hers for a really long time. And her new book is a love letter to Black women in pop music, many of whom have not been given their due. Danielle recognizes their legacies and captures how the genre was built on their achievements in a way that I I have just never heard it described before. I also saw myself reflected in her book. It's about growing up as a Black girl in this country and what it's like to both achieve, but also to be wildly underestimated. It's a book about humility and also this really imaginative and beautiful bravery. All right, y'all, let's get into it. Here is my chat with Danielle. This book is such a personal and intimate journey through the history of Black women in pop music. It starts with Phyllis Wheatley, a woman who was enslaved and sang her poems, and it stretches through history with stories about all of the greats that we know, like Aretha Franklin, Whitney Houston, Gladys Knight, and Janet Jackson. I have to ask about your inspiration for writing this book. It feels to me like you've been writing it your whole life. The main inspiration is I just literally never feel like Black women in music receive the credit they are due. I also just feel like Black women's lives and to some degree also Black people's artistic and genius, um, the genius side of their lives is written about so often in summary. I think their lives are written about so often as like a moment of Black History Month or written about um, as a moment of a first uh, being accomplished. And all of these things are smart and all of these things are important. But I wanted to very much write about the details of the genius of Black women's lives, everything from what the material of their dresses um, was to what wigs they decided to put on to the decor at the clubs they most often performed at to their actual births, um, their mothers, you know, giving birth to them and what were the circumstances of those birth moments. I think all of this kind of stuff is important. And if you look at writing about people like Paul McCartney, or you look at writing with people like Eric Clapton, or all these, you know, famous uh, white male rock stars, you know this stuff. But so often for Black women, we just don't know these things. And these things do contribute to people's genius, to people's lives, to what they create. What is lost when we don't learn about those origin stories, those minute details like the fabric and the texture of these women's lives? What are we missing when we don't talk about that? I mean, it's the word is used a lot, but it's used a lot because it's the right word. It contributes to erasure. It contributes to uh, viewing artists with a kind of simplicity. It doesn't acknowledge, for example, I go into it in Shine Bright this moment of Gladys Knight recording, you know, one of the vocal tracks for Midnight Train to Georgia. You know how hard it is to just even find that? Yeah. Who was in the room? What vocal they were laying? Who the instrumentalists were? Who the engineer was? Where Gladys was standing in the room when she was recording? Wow. Like, where is that just all in one place? And also, frankly, for me, it's my voice on the topic, just because I I consider myself to be a very passionate creator, a very 
rigorous reporter. And I wanted it just all there in one place with that kind of passion and rigor. I have to say, I was so impressed by the way in which you seem to think so critically about music, even when you you were so young and the way that you talked about the ways that men who largely had all of the bylines back then were writing about women, writing about Black women artists, writing about women fan bases and how they enjoyed music. How did you start thinking about music in that way? It's it's just so nuanced and layered. Well, one, I appreciate that. Two, I just have always loved music. I've always been nosy. <laughs> um, so I guess it makes sense that I guess it makes sense that I would become, you know, a culture writer, a music critic. But it really started for me reading the liner notes of albums. Um, we used to have albums in the house. My mother was very big with the Columbia club where you would like for a penny, you would get 10 albums, whatever that Mm -hmm. cult was. We were in it deeply. And my (laughs) mother would let us pick like three of the albums or whatever the ratio was. And these things were treasures in the house. And even before that, I just remember like uh, songs in the key of life, the, the album art and the lyric book and everything that came with Stevie Wonder's songs in the key of life album. These things impacted me the design I think it also contributed to me wanting to become a magazine editor the way these things were designed and there seemed to be so much emotion in them and so much poetry and then man by the time I got to high school I would go to the library I write about it a little bit in Shine Bright and I would look at the magazines the old life magazines the old Rolling Stone magazines I went to a great high school St. Mary's Academy in Inglewood California and we used to have these bound issues of these old magazines and I would just go through them and I would read about what people were saying about, you know, the Beatles and what they were saying about, you know, all the big groups of the sixties, Motown, the Supremes. And I would so rarely see a woman's byline. I would literally be searching for it. I would literally go to the next collection of bound issues, just looking, looking for a woman's byline, even something I could make up, like maybe if she spelled it with an IE, maybe it means it's <laughs> <Yeah>. a woman. <laughs> but I couldn't find it, man, and it made me mad. Um, you described this book as an attempt for yourself to explore your intense love and devotion to music. And it made me wonder what this book taught you about yourself and about how you grew up. You know, you know things. But then you don't necessarily just go around acknowledging them or stating them. And I think as much as I've written about music in my life, I didn't always go around saying that it saved my life. Mm. It gave me whole parts of my childhood that were missing because of the tumultuous nature of my childhood, which I write about a good deal in Shine Bright. And it's the first time I'm really writing about it publicly because I've written about it semi-autobiographically in you know a novel that I wrote in 03 called More Like Wrestling. And I've got stacks and stacks of journals about it. And Lord knows I, I probably damn near killed my um, MFA <laughs> cohort reading aloud about it in tears. Like it goes mm-hmm. on and on, but this is, but this is the first time I've really put it out there. And so But I just decided, you know, I'm in my mid-50s and it's like, who am I saving it for? And why am I not telling the story of what is really the story of myself and my sister, Raquel, who loves music also, is a passionate music lover. 
But I just wanted to say, and again, give the music of Black women the credit that it's due even in my life. Like, to just go around saying, oh my God, I just love music so much. That's why I became a music critic. I mean, yeah, sure. But if I hadn't listened to Natalie Cole when I was eight, nine years old, would I be a music critic right now? I just don't know that I would be. This will be everlasting love. If I hadn't listened to Sade when I was in my early 20s and late teens, would I be the former editor-in-chief of Vibe or Billboard? I don't know that I would be. These women don't just have like a passing effect on me. It's not, and I love to dance and I, and I have danced and hopefully will continue to dance many, many nights until the, mm-hmm. the actual break of dawn. But I'm talking about being in service to my soul, like, and getting me to where I needed to be as like a, a human on this earth. And they deserve that uh, credit. Thanks again to the incomparable Danielle Smith. Her book, Shine Bright, A Very Personal History of Black Women in Pop, is out now. You can also catch Danielle's podcast, Black Girl Songbook, on Spotify. And that's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. If you want more, you can sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter slash books. I'm Andrew Limbong. The podcast is produced by Kelly Wessinger and Miranda Mazariegos and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Michelle Aslam, Ed McNulty, Isabella Gomez, Melissa Gray, Jonas Adams, Natalie Winston, Hafsa Fatima, Ravenna Koenig, Connor Donovan, Catherine Fox, Anjali Sasu-Kebchek, Acacia Squires, and Tamarsh Harney. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening. On the TED Radio Hour, in the middle school cafeteria, Ty Tashiro always sat with his equally nerdy buddies. The socially awkward kids who were the furthest thing from cool. And he often wondered, Why am I so socially awkward and what am I going to do about that? Now Ty is a psychologist and expert on awkwardness, and he has some answers. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. From the campaigns to the conventions, from now through Election Day and beyond, the NPR Politics Podcast has you covered. As Joe Biden and Donald Trump square off again, we bring you the latest news from the trail and dive deep into each candidate's goals for a second term. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast every weekday. The day's top headlines, local stories from your community, your next podcast binge listen. You can have it all in one place, your pocket. Download the NPR app today.